Ay. Well, good evening, church. It is time for us to begin our Bible study tonight, and we're finishing up the uh, the resurrection and then moving on to Jesus being the way. Uh, so everything that, that God has done is to bring us to this resurrection, and uh, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Welcome to you all who are here, those who are online, and those who are here with us uh, in the audience. Let's go to God in prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much. And we can never thank you enough for Jesus, for your amazing grace, and for your patience and kindness. Thank you so very much for loving us and keeping us and strengthening us and blessing us and for watching over us. Thank you, Lord God, for being our good shepherd, the chief shepherd. Thank you for being our Savior. We ask that you'll bless our Bible study tonight. That you open our minds to understand you more clearly. In Jesus' holy name we pray and thank thee to be thy will. Amen. John chapter 5. So the resurrection. The resurrection. But the resurrection day. When it's all over. When, when everything's finished. The end of all time. Jesus says that there is a day and everything's going to happen. You've heard uh, maybe the seven-year rapture, the thousand-year rap, you know, reign, the thousand-year millennium, post-millennial, a-millennial. There's so many different ideas of the thousand years and things of that sort. But God, God's pretty clear and precise about the resurrection day. So John 5 will begin. In verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Notice that he includes all, which is not hyperbole, it's, that's it, right? Everyone in the tombs will hear the voice of God. Verse 29, and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, who will participate in this resurrection day? All. Everyone is included. The good and the bad. Well, then he goes on in John 6 to continue on that thought. We'll begin at verse 39. And there it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on thee. You'll notice a series of definite articles. The last day. Not not thousands of last days, but just one. On the last day. And then verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 54, 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God is not confused, right? I mean, this is a really confusing topic when you talk to a millennialist um, because they're just so confused. But if you just keep it simplified and allow God to speak, it's a very simple topic uh, to discuss with anyone. First Corinthians chapter 15. Everything Jesus did was to bring us to this very last day to raise us up with him to take us to heaven to be with the Father at the end of all time. And this is a beautiful day for God's people. It's a day of expectation. We expect this day to come because of the greatness of our God. First Corinthians 15 and verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So being consistent with the teaching of Jesus, it's all going to happen on the last day. And he gives an order, a certain order of events on that day in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll begin at verse 13, where he gives this order of events of how the end, um, as far as the resurrection is concerned, how it's going to take place. So he says to the church at Thessalonica, who thought they missed the resurrection. They thought it was over. They, you know, they were left behind. In, in some way, or God had already come back and taken his people home. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And when is all this going to happen? On thee last day. First Corinthians chapter 15. We'll go back and just read the, um, the, the entire text of the resurrection beginning at verse 50 about what's going to happen on the last day. Now this I say to you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so when Jesus came back and he said to Mary, do not cling to me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. There was this transition, uh, or transformation, should I say, uh, of the of the body that would eventually happen. And uh, that's kind of what Jesus was speaking of. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all, we shall be changed, excuse me. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So our bodies will be changed from this physical, fleshly body to a spiritual one. And what that looks like and what that is, no one has a clue. But it will be perfect, right? And we'll all be thankful. And all I ever think about is, and I'll get to fly without using an airplane. (laughs) Finally, right? No longer be held by gravity. Uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Acts 17 and verse 30 and verse uh, 31. Actually 31. We'll just go to 31. No, I'm going to start at 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to snare, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So, the question then is, if Jesus rose from the dead, do we believe that we will rise too from the dead? And it's kind of an easy yes if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Is it possible for a person to be dead and rise? Well, we looked at the Old Testament. How many times did we see it over and over again? And then in the New Testament as well. And so the resurrection is not just a subject in the Bible. It is one of the main subjects of the Bible. Because in the end, every person will be brought to this judgment day on the last day and will stand before God. Jesus came to save us on that day. Isn't that great? He, he came to stand as our advocate on that day. He is not just our mediator now. He'll be our mediator on that day. He is the one who will speak for God in our place or in our stead. And for that, we are eternally grateful, right? Jesus says, I am the only way to God. I am the only way to heaven. I am the only truth that there is. And I am the only life, the way in which we live. It all is because of Jesus. Someone once said, all roads lead to God if you're sincere and seeking Him. And what they mean by that is, you can be a person who just worships nature. It still leads to God. You can be a person who worships Buddha. It still leads to God. Or worships the Pope. Or or worships uh, Muhammad. Or whomever it may be. You can worship anyone or anything that you want. And all of those roads, because you believe in a higher power that exists, you believe and you will make it into heaven to be with God. And Jesus says, that won't happen. There is only one way to get to heaven. 
There's only one way to get to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. So he taught this in so many different ways. I want to go to John chapter 14 and begin there. The only way to God and no other is through Jesus Christ. Brethren, we are participating and are children of that way. And that's something that we ought to really rejoice over, that we are a part of that way. And we, we could think about where you could be, uh, today. Maybe you could think about where you came from, and then think about where you could be today. You could be so lost today, right? And this isn't about, uh, you know, who's better than, and whom or whatever. This is, this has nothing to do with that. This is about right and wrong. This is about truth and error. And there is no in-between. Jesus makes it clear in his teaching that he is the absolute only way and there is no other. So we'll start in John 14 and we'll begin in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So here's a question for us. Why are we either, as a church body, maybe in today's world, I won't use the word maybe ashamed, um, but, but why do we feel the necessity to be included in the all-inclusive world today? Does that make sense? You know, in the world today, they say, anything goes, right? Anything goes, right? You can, you can do what you want. You can live however you want. You can belong to any church. It's almost as if um, the church, right, the church no longer believes that there's only one church. It's, it's almost like the church, we've kind of become, because of, you know, the word the word hate. You know, the world says, well, that's kind of hateful or hate speech. We've, we've kind of become the people that can no longer set the standard of living. In, in other words, instead of leading We've, we've kind of become uh, like everyone else. It's almost like we're this, you know, hodgepodge. Like, you know, we all fit together. And, and even in the church, you know, the most, the people who become most offended, if you were to, in the pulpit and you start saying, well, you start asking, well, is the Baptist the one church? The Lutheran? The Presbyterian? The Episcopalian? And I start going down the list. It's the church members who get offended. Not the Episcopalians or the Baptists. They're the one, they're saying the same thing. I mean, if you ever study with them, they'll tell you, well, we're the, we're the way to get to God. It's like, well, they're not, they're not all in this inclusive world of, of thinking, but it's the new age movement that's into this all inclusive, you know, everybody just come together and, and join in and we're going to be this non-denominational denomination, right? Isn't that funny? That's what the denomination, you have to understand what a denomination is to be able to declare yourself non-denominational, right? The original is non-denominational. Everything else is a denomination. But where do we lose that in the body of Christ? Where do we lose that 
understanding that Jesus is trying to teach us that there truly is only one way. There's not only one way, but there's only one lifestyle that we can live. There's only one people that we can be. There's only one church that we can be a part of. It's still only one, and it hasn't changed. Where has it changed in the mind of the church? Where does the church, or where has the church become so softened to where we we kind of dishonor this teaching that Jesus brought? It's no longer a, um, in the minds of, of many members of the church, it's no longer an honor to be a part of what Jesus brought and that what he died for. Now it's more like, you know, I mean, is, is there really only one church? Well, what did Jesus say? That doesn't seem to matter too much any longer. What, what happened? That's kind of my question tonight. And if you'd like to comment on that, uh, please feel free to do so. We're going to go to Acts 4, but uh, if you have a comment uh, on that, then we want to kind of open the floor up because we have to get, if we're going to save souls, and this is what happens. If I believe that every person in the world is a Christian and that every person in the world, each of them are saved, why would I ever evangelize? See, that's Satan's trick, right? His trick is to make us or cause us to believe that everybody's a Christian. So then the church no longer has to teach this hard doctrine that Jesus presented to us that there's only one way and he is that way. So instead, what the church, who has the power given through the word to the church because of truth, I am the truth, the church then doesn't do its its God-given responsibility to share the word and say, you know, actually, there's only one church, and there's only one way to be saved, and there is no other. Yes, um, uh, J.J. Scott. As a comment, question. Thank you. Yeah, thinking about that uh, that question, I think, like you said, it's Satan's his his uh, his schemes is using that good nature in us of wanting everyone to be saved, just like God does, and uh, trying to make us convince ourselves that people are saved, no matter what they believe, mm-hmm. uh, because we want to see them saved. And uh, that's one thing that we need to hold fast to is that, and tell people is that God's love is unconditional, but his salvation is conditional. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, this is something we need to remember and point people to his word when right. it comes to it. Does it, does it, um, now continuing on that, um, does it feel comfortable to speak to people about this subject about being saved or lost? Is it a comfortable feeling? Not really, right? But it's not supposed to feel comfortable. <laughs> you know, when, when's the last time your doctor came in here to the room, right? You've been there, and, and he comes in, and he says, well, I got some good news and some, you know, some bad. It doesn't feel comfortable to give bad news. And he's done this his whole life for, you know, for the last 20 years. And he still comes in with compassion. And what happens when a doctor comes in and he doesn't have good bedside manners? <laughs> he walks in and says, well, you got about a week and you're going to die. 
You're like, Doc, couldn't you just soften that message a little bit? Well, but if it's the truth. I mean, we like bedside manners. Um, but in our contemporary world today, it's just softer and easier to believe that everybody's going to be saved. And, and, and what a great comment about having, you know, that, that good nature, good natured people. We want, of course we want everyone to be saved. But we have to remember two things. One is, God also wants everyone to be saved. But this is one area where God is not going to get his wish. Second Peter 3, God is not willing to any perish, but for all to come to repentance. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen. Yes, okay. I think sometimes fear is the reason. You know, there's a passage, I can't remember where it is right now, but it talks about... Can't hear you. I think fear is a reason for why we do stay silent. I can speak personally for myself. Um, You are concerned with how people will respond, how they'll react. Uh, And I think if we remind ourselves in that moment of a passage that talks about the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times when I'm contemplating saying something, I have to pray. Lord, give me the strength because I know the Bible says I'll be with you always. So Mm -hmm. we have to get over that because it could jeopardize our souls getting to heaven. So we can't fool ourselves Mm -hmm. that we're going to be okay if we stay silent. Right. You're right about that. Uh, you know, it's funny you bring it up because I, I think about the, you know, you, you're in the first century and you're going to go out and spread the gospel and you go to someone and you say, hey, uh, do you believe in Jesus? And they're like, I don't know who this Jesus is. And you begin talking to them and you find out they're a Roman. And then they call the Roman guard and you know now you're about to die. <laughs> so that's what it was like for them. And yet the gospel kept spreading and spreading and spreading because they did not love their lives even to death. Now that's not going to happen to us. <laughs> and and yet uh, there's still this level of un- uncomfort or uncertainty. You, know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how they're going to respond. Will they still be my friend? Will they talk to me? Will they, uh, you know, will this happen? And will that happen? And it really doesn't, it doesn't matter. My wife um, brought out a, something kind of interesting yesterday because I was talking to my neighbor and and the minute I start talking about Jesus, she says, yeah, he gets really uncomfortable. Well, that's what's supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to be the one uncomfortable. He becomes uncomfortable. And what, whether he knows or what he knows about Jesus or not doesn't matter. Uh, what, what matters is he knows enough to feel uncomfortable. Right? Uh, we're trying to save people. Jesus says there's no other way but through him. Listen to Acts 4, verse 10. Uh, we'll look at 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is a stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men, I wish we must be saved. There's no other name. This is it, right? So, so we are, we are the last chance for the world to be saved. 
through Jesus. This is the only name by which we can be saved. And when you go to um, a foreign country, what's amazing is when you when you're in India, the people are so so fed up with with the Baha'i faith and Buddha, and they realize, you know, there's something wrong with this. And you come along and you start teaching about a God who sees and a God who speaks and a God who hears. That fascinates them, you know, because the statue doesn't do doesn't do those types of things. When, when you're when you're just wherever you are in a foreign country, we have to be willing to talk about these things, right? Right here in our in our very city, there's just so many different faiths, and so many of them believe, well, we're all one, but we know that's not true, right? And we have to tell them that, don't we? And if we don't tell them, who will? You think Satan's going to tell them? No. He'll tell them something, but it won't be the truth. So Jesus, listen to what he says. Think about it. What if Jesus came to our congregation, Matthew chapter 7, and he started talking about being the way, the only route to heaven, uh, the only way to approach the Father, the only standard of life, the only way that's acceptable to God. What if Jesus came through our city and began to teach like that? <laughs> Think about that, right? What if, what if he read, he, he quoted himself. Uh, Matthew 7 and verse 13, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And, and many, many of, many of those will enter by it. Most, most of you people in this city are going through the wide gate of destruction. What if he did that? What if he came to this, this congregation on a Sunday morning when everyone's here and he started preaching like that? Would we accept him? Or would we become offended? Right? And then he, and then he continues in his dialogue in verse 14 and he says, for the gate is small. And, and, and the way is narrow that leads to life. This straight, difficult gate. And, and few enter by it. Would, would we say, well, I want to be a part of the few? Or we disregard it? You know, if you think about few, it's kind of scary. You go to the world and you go, alright, a few in the world, well that's a pretty big number. A few in the nation, that's a much smaller number. <laughs> a few in the state is a smaller number. A few in the city is an even smaller number. A few in the congregation, an even smaller number. How small can that number get? So when I hear Jesus say to enter by that narrow gate, I think about, Lord, help me to be a part of the few. It doesn't mean that, that in any way that we're saying by asking that question of God and making that request make me better than everyone else we're just saying God I want to go to heaven to be with you and what if he continued to teach in this congregation verse 21 he went a little further and says not everyone of you sitting in this auditorium who says to me Lord Lord 
will enter into the kingdom of heaven. How many would become offended? And how many of you would change? How many of us would change? Think about that. Take a self-inventory. Look at your life and say, Lord, is my life aligned with the Jesus who died for me and for the whole world? And he says, if you want to go to heaven, there's only one way to get there. I am the source, and these are my rules, and this is my church, and these are my regulations, and if you do not follow them, you will never make it into heaven. How many of us would change, and how many of us would become angry? <laughs> us, the church. Not the world. Even the world will tell you, well, yeah, I know I'm not going to get there. Have you ever, <laughs> you ever studied with people and they go, well, I know I'm not going to heaven. You know, the world it will admit that to you. I did. I knew I wasn't going. <laughs> I didn't question it. I knew I wasn't going. And I was thankful that someone said, what well, would you like to go? Like, well, I don't know how to get there. <laughs> I don't know the way. The narrow gate, the way that we're supposed to live, the honor of living this life is because of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And you know what will compel us to live this life? Our love for Jesus. This series that will soon end, falling in love with Jesus. If you don't fall in love with Jesus, then we're going to remain stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, all the things that we are, we're never going to change because we don't love Jesus. And if we don't love Jesus, who do we love? Self. To fall in love with Jesus is to recognize that he was kind enough to tell us in advance. Isn't that good news? Thank you, Jesus. For, not, for me, you know, I, all this time I thought, no, I don't have to say that. I know that Jesus died and, and has given me the right and the opportunity and the blessing and works in me to accomplish his will to help me to get on that narrow road, to stay in that straight way, to say, Lord, Lord, because of my obedience to him, thank you for telling me that this is the only way. Because if you had not told me, I would have done it some other way. The beauty of Jesus Christ. What great joy. And he was strong enough to tell us. He wasn't afraid of how we would feel. He wasn't afraid that we would become offended. He wasn't afraid of the fact that we might get angry and walk away for a little while and then maybe come back. He was willing to preach the message straight. He says, I am the only way and there is no other. The Areopagus, 3,000 gods. The Romans, don't you say that there's another king. Do not say there's another God. The emperor, he's king. He's God. We will kill you if you say that. And the Christians said, here I am. Right? What did Polycarp say? Light the fire. Right? I mean, there's a lot more he said along with that. Verse 22, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
look at all the stuff we did for you, right? Did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and in your name to perform many works or, or miracles? Remember all the stuff we did for you, God? This is a beautiful picture of the generation now and the generations to come. See, you owe me, God. I Look at all the stuff I did. I know it's by your power, but look at all of the stuff that I did for you. How can you say to me that I'm not going to go to heaven after I've done all of these things for you? And then this confusing, powerful, mesmerizing, and amazing message comes to the speaker. Jesus says to them in verse 23, And then I'll declare to you, depart from me. Hmm. I never knew you. (laughs) You knew me. Because your work was of iniquity. In other words, you, you were serving another God. No, no, Jesus, I never served another God. And he says, yeah, you served yourself. You are your own God. You see, it's kind of, it's this amazing teaching that is designed to wake the child of God up, to cause the child of God to no longer love themselves, but to lose themselves in Christ Jesus to receive the reward that feeds our selfishness. Thank you, God, for that. And to receive the blessing from God by His grace and by His mercy. And to never be the person who expects to just have the hookup on Judgment Day. You know, that, well, Jesus, you know, I did all this stuff in your name. Therefore, you owe me. And that's that's not the way this works. Have I fallen in love with Jesus? So Jesus challenges the belief system on every level in the days of the Romans, and even to our hearts today. So John 8 and verse 24, the belief system. What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you really believe him to be? Um, he said, unless you believe, I tell you, unless you believe that I'm here, you will die in your sins. And and what, is, what does that mean to believe that, that he is the one? I mean, if he is everything... What's left? He doesn't leave room for me. He doesn't leave room for me not to live a sacrificial life. To be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? And we proudly boast that. And yet we don't do what Jesus would do. Right? Live a sacrificial life. Live by the power of God. Live for Jesus. Live and be what God wants us to be the instrument, the instrument of the creator of the universe, of the whole world, things visible and invisible. Hey, I'm more afraid of my friends than Jesus. I don't want to tell my friend. I don't want to tell my neighbor. I don't want to tell so-and-so about Jesus. I'm more concerned about how they would feel about me than I am concerned about how Jesus would feel about me. And he died to save all of us. We have to fall in love with Jesus to give him the opportunity to work in our hearts. 
to work in us because he's not going to force us to do it. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Is that real? Is that is that true? Look at John chapter, I know you know this, but John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is a perspective verse. It's, it's a verse that gives us information, I know. But it also is a perspective verse. Kind of putting, putting life into the proper perspective. I'm, I don't really, I don't want to engage in this conversation with this individual because, and then that may be, I'm afraid, or I don't feel adequate, or um, I, uh, whatever the reasons may be, or just, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm just timid. Sometimes it's, I don't want to seem like a hypocrite, because they kind of know how I live my life, and I hate to bring up Jesus to them. When you put life into perspective from John 1, it, it becomes a little, it becomes a, it becomes very challenging in a, in a, in a little, um, because it's on one hand, there's Jesus. Unless you believe that I'm He, you would die in your sins. On one hand, there's Jesus. In juggling the other hand, there's family, friends, co-workers, whomever, you might you might mention, and you put it in the proper perspective. Unless you believe that I'm He, you realize that I'm choosing between God and the world, and the the scales aren't always equal. Meaning, it should never be equal, but sometimes God loses on the scale. Who is Jesus? We know there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-substantial, co-eternal. We're talking one God. And so Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is He. The Father is He. And the Son is He, Right? God, 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 co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal. Why would I ever be afraid to talk about the creator to the created? And that is a work of Satan. He has put that into our hearts. So listen to what John 1 tells us, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So when someone says, wait, don't talk to me about Jesus, you mean don't talk to you about your Creator? <laughs> no, Jesus. Yeah, well, He's your Creator. So, you, so you're, you're asking me not to talk to you about salvation, to help you to understand what your Creator has done for you. It's a different, it's a different idea, isn't it? When you think about that. See, because people, Jesus is so low in the minds of the world, 
And and I'll say this because it's true. And sadly enough, even in the minds of the church, he's so belittled, if you will, almost non-existence with the world idea of deity, even in the church. You say, well, well, preacher, that's not true. Well, yeah, it is. How many times have you heard church members use Jesus' name in vain? You'd only do that if you don't know who he is. See, when you believe who he is, you would never put the name of God in your mouth without having the proper reverence. You would never say the words that Hollywood, uh, you know, uses. And, and you would never say the OM1, you know. You wouldn't say those things. You wouldn't buy those t-shirts. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't shout that in the streets. You wouldn't post that on your Facebook. You would never do that if you believed who Jesus was. Jesus says, unless you believe that I'm he, you're dying in your sins. Right? Think about that. No child of God would ever do that. As in the Hebrew world, the Jews were so terrified to use the name of God, to say Adonai, to say Jehovah, to say Elohim. Terrified to say Jehovah God, Yahweh. They always used it with, with a proper amount of reverence. How do, you, how do you feel when you hear people say that about God in an irreverent way? It should bother you. Remember righteous Lot? Righteous Lot was tormented day by day by the things he saw and the things that he heard. Are we tormented living in this world? We serve the Creator. And this is the only way to live. It is the only way to God. He is the only way to heaven. There is no other way. And if we are going to get there, we have to have the proper perspective, mindset, and attitude, and relationship with our God. In verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh. Who was the Word? God, right? Emmanuel, Matthew chapter 1 God with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory to the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, right? God. Listen, tonight, this, this you know, as we begin to wrap this, this lesson series up, We have to put life in the proper perspective. There is nothing worth losing our souls. Nothing. And so tonight, the question is, we'll have a Devo, and you'll have an opportunity to surrender to God in the waters of baptism. If you would like to be baptized into Christ, you'll have an opportunity to repent if necessary. You may go home and repent. You may go home and call someone that you need to make things right with. Whatever whatever needs to happen, Tonight would be that night to do that. Putting life into the proper perspective. Ask yourself, do I love Jesus more than I love my God? And your God is you. And everything that your God produces, right? So whatever you are doing, whatever I am doing, that is contrary to the will of God, and I willfully do it because it's my choice and my freedom. 
as I have elected to have my will in my way instead of Jesus' way, the question is, do I love Jesus enough to change? To get rid of self, that God, and be the man and the woman that God wants me to be? How much do I love Jesus? How much do I love my sin? You know, the little sin. Just a little bit. Doesn't hurt. A little teeny bit. Right? How much do I love that little sin? That thing that keeps me from doing the will of God. That keeps me from worship. That thing that keeps me. Whatever it is. Tonight I wanted to challenge you. And I thank you for allowing me that opportunity to speak to you. But I am talking to you or telling you and speaking to you about things that Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no other way. And so I invite you back next week, Lord willing, we will continue uh, on this part and uh, then begin to wrap up over the next uh, week or two in this series. Thank you for your time tonight. God bless each and every one of you. Um, We'll have a Devo in just a moment.